Hello, welcome to James's pre-fight, post-fight MMA show, where we recap all the important things happening in the sport of MMA, and I, your host James, try to explain to you what's going on in the sport and make it as easy as one, two, three for you to understand. We hope you enjoy the show. On a mountain peak. There he sat, and he began to speak. Uh, volcano man, he climbed a mountain high. Volcanic protector man, a tyrant he rose not to. Volcano man, guarding the land. Welcome back to the show, everyone. This is your host speaking, James. Um, hope you enjoyed the weekend of fights. I hope you enjoyed my rendition of the the one of the greatest songs of our generations, Volcano Man, from the movie Eurovision on Netflix. I am not sponsored by Netflix, of course. Corporate Jake is sitting on his butt, not doing anything about that. We're giving people free advertisement. But it's whatever. I enjoy the movie Eurovision very much. And I will probably talk about it many times in the future. Maybe in another podcast. Maybe in all my podcast episodes. Or maybe just in this podcast. But nonetheless, I will speak about it with the talks of half-naked men fighting in a cage. So, I'm going to do a quick run-through. Do some of the... Uh, the... Um, You'll see two fifty-two cards, uh, fight card, the main card specifically. We're gonna go from bottom to top. Some of them I'm gonna go into more detail than others. Uh, first one, John Dodson versus Marab Devoshwili. Aha! See, I learned how to pronounce it now. Um, basically, kind of like the tale of all Dodson's fights. You know, he always has the power to knock anybody out, and he's always trying to look for the position to. Throw that big knockout punch or kick. But Marab sticking to the game plan that his team, Matt Sarah and Ray Longo, Long Island, New York's own uh, fight team, said was to fake um, punches and kicks. You know, throw a lot of kicks on the outside. Be long. You know, he is the longer guy. Um, let me see. I believe he had a reach. He did have a reach advantage. And then use fakes to get Dodson to back up. And then when he felt like the takedown was there, take it. And he did a great job of when he took Dotson down and Dotson would get right back up. Marab would stick on him, pressure more, go for the takedown again. And if he could get a hold of him, even if Dotson got out of the takedown or got up to his feet, um, just stick to Dotson as much as he could with his grappling. And it basically looked like, um, you know, like Dotson was fatiguing. That's why in the third round he didn't have as much juice. To keep uh, striking, you know, didn't have his explosive knockout power. And it's interesting to see where Dawson goes from here. You know, this is a guy who's a flyweight. He was one of the top five fighters in the division. And in a bantam way, he's kind of struggling to even be relevant. Uh, seems like his the game plan for every fight against him is to take him down, wrestle him, despite himself being a great wrestler. Being a great uh, takedown defense guy. But it, it seems like if we just keep pressing on him, he will fade. You know, his offense was to go really, really low. 
So it'll be interesting to see what um he goes from there. Uh, personally, I think he should be fighting like a Brian Kelleher, someone who brings a well-rounded fight, uh, not as experienced, a little bit on the older side as well. Fight him, and for Mirab Devoshuli, there's many things he could do. You know, I know he called out Sean O'Malley to fight. I think that's a fight. That's a possibility since O'Malley lost his fight. Um, I think a fight with him and uh, Song Yedong makes more sense a little bit. You know, two guys, up-and-coming fighters, uh, you know, both in well-known teams, Song Yedong fighting out of Team Alpha Male, you know, where Cody Garber and Uri Faber train at, and Amirav Devoshwili coming out of Law MMA, which, you know, has Aljamain Sterling, like Quinta, Chris Wyman. So I think it'll be a great fight between rising prospects. Song Yedong... And um, Rob Devoshuli. I think that should be the next fight to make. Herbert Burns versus Daniel Pineda. To be honest, even I, as someone who's obsessed with these guys and watches so many fights, I didn't know Daniel Pineda that much. I knew that Herbert, I knew that he came from the UFC. He was in the UFC in 2014 and then he got cut that year. And But, you know, he's been on a tear outside of the UFC, came back. He fought his way back into a contract. Herbert Burns, I know him. He, uh, he brought younger brother Gilbert Burns, very well known as a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt. Very good knees and elbows. You know, trained under the same gym as Gilbert, as his older, as his, um, I believe older brother Gilbert Burns. Uh, and they kind of have similar properties like big knockout power, great Jiu Jitsu. Pineda starting out the first round takes Burns down. Which is very surprising to many since uh, um, Burns is known for his grappling and submission game. And, you know, his him and his brother are just notorious for their submissions. But Burns missed weight by, I believe, four pounds. So maybe Pineda's game plan was if I take him down, grind him out, hit him a couple of times on the ground, maybe it'll stun him to be a little bit more tired. It seemed to have worked that way. Because Pineda ended up getting Burns in a crucifix position, which is basically where you have your two legs pin one of uh, Burns' arms and then your arm, Pineda's arm, pinned, his left arm pinned down uh, Burns' uh, right arm. And then Pineda just went to town with elbows. And one thing to take from that is like, one, you know, his Pineda's strategy to get Burns tired through wrestling and clinch work. <clears throat> excuse me, really seemed to work and it paid off. But also maybe it's just that Pineda's good on the ground and you typically see this, right? You get fighters who are really great submission guys like Gilbert and Herbert Burns who competed many times in the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu um, scene where they did a lot of submission grappling. But then you meet guys like Pineda who's good enough to defend uh, Burns' submissions, and also who has strikes on his side, right? You know, MMA, you can throw strikes now, which changes things, right? It's hard to go for submissions, you know, go for sweeps when you're getting punched in the face, and Panetta was on top, so position-wise, and he has a little bit of an advantage. Sometimes when you got guys who are even, or not even even, but one guy can keep up another, sometimes it just depends on who lands in what position. So that's why I saw in that fight. JDS... Versus Rosenstrike, I thought it went how I thought it was going to go. JDS coming out with boxing combinations. Uh, not even combinations, one or two punches at most. Throwing outside leg kicks. Rosenstrike 
seemed like in the first round he was content on letting JDS come to him. JDS throwing punches. And then as JDS backs up straight, backs up straight backwards, excuse me, and Rosenstruck would just fall up with a kick. And we like to call that uh, you're following somebody in. So Ro- so basically, JDS would move straight forward into Rosenstrike's range to punch him. Move straight back. And as he's moving straight back, Rosenstrike will land the kick. And you can see that JDS was kind of like trying to assess like how is he going to enter the pocket now. That Rosenstrike's kicking his leg. Because Rosenstrike, I'm sure he kicks hard. And JDS kind of has like a very susceptible stance. A stance that's very susceptible getting kicked in the leg. Since he stands so bladed, it, he can't take a lot of force into his legs. And uh, Rosenstrike doing a great job, great strategy. You know, things I, I was yelling at the TV and my, my parents were complaining that the people in the screen can't freaking hear me. Um, is I was saying how JDS, maybe if he fakes coming in, right? Fake coming in, fake coming in. Rosenstrike throws the kick and then bang, as he throws the kick, connect with a punch. Or kind of like what Frankie Edgar does. Frankie Edgar will come in the pocket, throw some punches. Typically, Frankie throws combinations. And then he would exit either left or right. And Rosenstrike, you know, kicks only cover one side. Either left, you know, kicks to the left leg, you can't go le- uh, to your right. Kicks to the right leg, you can't go to your left anymore. But it lowers the options for Rosenstrike to kick if you exit the pocket left or right. And that would have been something JDS has to look at for the next time. Because... Basically, now he's just kind of become the boxer, a great takedown defense. The thing is, he can't take a shot very well. Also, his diversity of attack isn't that much. And then basically, Rosenstrike in the second round started pressuring JDS. He knows that JDS, when he gets pressured, likes to fall back to the cage. And then um, did a great job. You know, uh, JDS was moving to Rosenstrike's right. Rosenstrike switched stance, so now he's standing his right leg forward and which allowed him to use his right hook which was closer to JDS's chin and JDS went down and um Rosenstrike did a great job you know really showing his skills being a technical fighter a technical kickboxer especially for a heavyweight you don't see that at often guys who are extremely willing to invest the legs and um you know and he had a little bit of trouble in the first round you know JDS uh, landing some good right hands. Rosenstrike trying to throw his left hook over the top. He's very well known for throwing a check left hook. Check meaning basically like you come forward and he'll throw this hook peeling off to a left or the right side. You know, he goes left or right while throwing the hook. And it's just to let the opponent know like, you know, I, I could hit you anytime. They call it check because you're checking the chin, letting him know he could hit it. And uh, sometimes you get knocked over that. Like some fighters, like Luke Rockhold, very good at throwing it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Had a little bit of Mexican food today. Um, Nate Diaz, you'll see him throw it a lot. It's a great strike to throw while moving backwards against an aggressive opponent who likes to come straight in. A uh, tough position for both guys, to be honest. Like I said, Rosenstrike got knocked out in his last fight against Francis Ngannou. And you got to imagine, Francis Ngannou is going to go for the title shot next. And then you got Curtis Blades, who's, in my opinion, ahead of uh, Rosenstrike when it comes to the title shot. So I think Rosenstrike, you either try to fight, you try to fight, <clears throat> excuse me, Curtis Blades. I think it's unlikely because Blades has been fighting number one contenders over and over again. Excuse me. I need to take a water break. Ah. 
So Rosa strikes. Should try to fight Blades. We, in my opinion, kind of lucky if he ends up fighting him, because Blades is very comfortable. He's in a very comfortable spot where it's no doubt after Ngannou gets his title shot, Curtis Blades will be fighting for the title. So I think uh, you get Rosenstrike, try to fight him if you can, or Rosenstrike versus Derek Lewis. You know, Derek Lewis, another guy on a nice win streak, beat a pretty good guys. Um, and I think it's just a marketable fight. It's a great fight between two very dangerous guys. Um, you know, dangerous guys, known for their knockout power, have a fan base behind them. I know Rosenstrike isn't that well-known in the state side, but the country he's from, I believe, Suriname. Uh, I've watched videos, and they show, like, you know, people will crowd streets. They have parades for him. People will flood the gym just to see him, stuff like that. And then Derek Lewis, you know, he's the guy, you know, the, the balls are hot guy. You know, he took his pants off in the octagon. So, you know, a lot of people know him. And I think that would be a great one. That's the thing about heavyweight now. It's kind of surprising. It's like heavyweight was one of the very few divisions. Unlike boxing, where boxing is like, oh, heavyweight's the best, right? MMA, it's a little bit different, right? People kind of said, like, there was a certain point of heavyweight where it started to dip, like, in competition, but slowly and surely, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's kind of become like a great division to be a part of, to watch, excuse me. I don't want to be any part of that, but to watch, it's great. And um, and then you got guys like John Jones, like, we'll discuss him later, but he's coming into the fold possibly. And, uh, you know, for Junior Santos, tough loss, right? Three losses in a row, <clears throat> excuse me, all by KO or TKO. For him... Even though he's lost, there's still a lot of fights to take. I think a fight that would be perfect for him is Alexio Linick. Alexio Linick, a guy who's kind of, you know, a little bit of an overachiever. Not known for his striking. You know, I talked about him in the Derek Lewis fight. Not known for his striking. Very well known for his um, catch wrestling, which kind of similar to jiu-jitsu. A little bit. Maybe one day I'll break it down. But, like, it's basically instead of going for, you know, they go for joint locks, like arm bars and stuff like that. But I could go for cranks or like you're crushing the structure of the face or the arm or the foot or whatever. And they're more known for top control. So like they're not as willing to go on their back typically. I'm, I'm, it's oversimplification. I'm making stereotypes. Please don't come after me if you're the biggest catch wrestling practitioner. I'm just trying to give a basics for um, casual people. And Olenek, he's known for that type of grappling, you know, judo based. Known for his throws. And for JDS, I think a fight with him would be perfect, right? You get the striker, the boxer, with great takedown defense in Junior Dos Santos. Alexio Linick, the, the catch wrestler, the, ju- the judoka, who's known for, um, you know, kind of being a little bit wild, but having great fights. And I go for two older guys, right? JDS isn't that old. But, you know, he's looked at as a guy who's kind of been here for a while. You want to get exciting fights. And that could be like a main event to a fight night. Like, you know, it's going to end with, like, it's going to be explosive. It's going to be exciting. I think JDS, <clears throat> you just try to do fights like that. Fights that people will be excited to watch. You know, the, he's lost three in a row. He could get the tower shot, maybe. You know, you never know what these things. This is heavyweight, right? As I said, there's times where the division isn't that great. It just so happens we're at a time where the division is at a great point where you have plenty of fights, plenty of matchups. So, <clears throat> for JDS, just take fun fights. Fights are exciting. Keep winning them. So then when the dust clears, maybe you could get a title shot. 
Moving on to the um to Sugar Sean O'Malley versus Marlon Vera. Not surprised Marlon Vera won the fight. Just a little shocked about how the way the way the fight ended up. And if you didn't watch it, which you know, a little bit of shame on you, no offense. Um Sean O'Malley doing a great job moving laterally, throwing a lot of le- hard leg kicks at Marlon Vera. Marlon Vera staying very calm, taking the center of the octagon. Um, Sean O'Malley using a lot of front kicks, a lot of long strikes, which he usually does. <clears throat> and then Marlon Vera biting a lot of the fakes, which isn't a good thing, right? You don't ever want to have somebody fake and then you fall for it, right? You like, set you up. But towards the uh, end of the, not the end of the round, towards the middle of the round, you know, Marlon Vera's coming forward, throwing his own leg kicks, trying to get close to Sugar Sean O'Malley. Starting to read the fakes more. Sean O'Malley, you know, being a little bit more patient. He knows that now it's going to be hard to get Vera to fall on a huge shot. And then all of a sudden you see him. He falls down to his knees. Gets back up. And then you see uh, his foot start to go crazy. You know, he started tripping a little bit. You can see that his ankle was almost like off. Like, you know, like your ankle, it's strong. It's structured to make sure that your feet move a certain way. O'Malley kind of wasn't doing that anymore at that point. And then, um, you know, he's getting caught against the cage, start throwing less. He was kind of trying to bait, in my opinion, Vera to come into a punch just so then, um, you know, uh, O'Malley could catch him with a big shot, which, in my opinion, at that point in the fight, this is the only time I saw Vera, how, that's the only way I could see O'Malley winning the fight. <clears throat> and then you watch him... Vera's closing down the distance with kicks, being patient, which I really love from Marlon Vera. I think a lot of opponents, if they saw Sean O'Malley limping, you know, his foot a little bit hurt, then I I saw, I would have thought that, you know, a lot of people would have rushed to try to finish him, get the highlight reel of a knockout over O'Malley. But then Vera was being patient. Then O'Malley's like, effort, I'm just going to move forward, throw combinations, hope something lands because this foot's not lasting that long. <clears throat> and then you see him go forward. He tries to throw a hard right hand as Vera's against the cage. And then O'Malley trips, falls. Vera gets inside the guard and hits him with this huge elbow. And you see O'Malley's hurt really bad. And everybody's like, oh, he was out. All this stuff. I don't know. <clears throat> he definitely looked like he was stunned on the ground. And then he hits him with another one. So two big shots. And then um, Herb Dean stops the fight. Which I know some people like Joe Rogan. <clears throat> Excuse me. They complained about the stoppage, saying how oh O'Malley wasn't out, but I think Herb was looking at his. He it was the beginning of the ground, like the beginning of the ground exchanges, the grappling exchanges. O'Malley didn't show anything that he was gonna get up, that he was gonna sweep, that he was gonna protect himself. He gets with two huge shots, and then you gotta think. Well, his foot's damaged, right? He can't even push off of it, so it's very little for him to do. <clears throat> Excuse me, and then uh, they stopped the fight. Very impressive by Marlon Vera, in my opinion. And I know a lot of people are going to take away this win. Like, oh, Sean O'Malley, if he came out healthy, he would have won the fight. Maybe. It didn't look like it was going to be like a typical, oh, Sugar Sean O'Malley is going to win by first round knockout. He looked like he had to think a little bit more, be a little bit more patient. And then the injury happened. Now, it's debatable if Vera caused injuries. Kind of like, like um, if he kicked the right leg of O'Malley... And then it kind of hurt his calf. And then O'Malley's ankle started going crazy. Maybe then I would say, okay, 
Barra caused the injury, which I'm not sure. He did throw a couple calf kicks. It didn't look like it was enough to hurt him. And even O'Malley didn't look like he was uh, having a problem when he first initially got kicked. And then, um, you know, of course, O'Malley, he's had an injury with his right foot before where he kicked Andre Sukumtau in 2018 in the head. And Sukumtau blocked and he ended up fracturing his foot. So maybe it's a recurring injury. Maybe he had the injury, he was training with it, injured again, and just went into the fight. Or maybe, you know, he um, injured it during the fight. I'm not sure. He's the only one who's going to know. It's tough to say because, um, you know, he he was say O'Malley was saying, um, not O'Malley, um, you're like Rogan makes the debate, right, all the time. Like, oh, if he caused the injury, then it's Vera's win, right? But... Like, Andre Sukuntal, when he fought O'Malley, he did something stupid. Like, he... Oh, like, uh, Sukuntal's not known as a grapple like Vera, right? He's more known as a knockout guy. And you can see, like, O'Malley went to the floor. When he was... His right foot was hurt, he was hopping. And Andre Sukuntal takes him down. And it's hilarious because if he didn't take him down and O'Malley fell, then basically if the... If Sukuntal doesn't get up and he doesn't get up, then it's declared the fight. O'Malley loses that fight. He loses by KO. He's not willing uh, to continue. So, um, you know, don't... don't like, You have to give the credit to Montvera. Opponents before who fought O'Malley with an injury, they lost him still, right? So you got to give credit to Vera for making the right moves, making the right adjustments, being patient enough to make it to that point in the fight, right? We see some fighters who aren't even that patient to let the fight play out against O'Malley. O'Malley looked like... And even if O'Malley didn't injure himself, I thought it was going to be a tough fight. Um, you could see, like, you know... And O'Malley did the right things. He wasn't rushing it. You know, he wasn't doing anything stupid. But you could see that it wasn't going to be, like, one of those highlight reel nights. He wasn't automatically going to the heavy weapons, like the head kicks or his uh, slick right hand. So, got a good credit to Marlon Vera where it's due... I do dislike the things like the Cody Garbrandt and Henry Cejudo saying. Because Garbrandt keeps saying how, you know, oh, you got carried out of stretcher. You're not really meant for war or all stuff. But you got to look at Garbrandt. When he lost to TJ Dillashaw, the second fight, he broke his hand supposedly. And he was saying how, oh, I would have won that fight if I didn't break my hand, right? It's kind of a similar situation. I'm not saying I would be able to know what to do. I'm, I'm a freaking wimp, you know? Uh, I, I'm listen, I'm recording a podcast in my home while these guys are training and fighting and all this stuff. But Garvin has a similar thing. And then when Garvin fought Pedro Munoz, and supposedly he got headbutted. I think he did get headbutted. And then he went crazy in the fight, trying to end the fight, and then got knocked out. And then Garvin was saying how, oh, you know, um, it's not it's not fair because he headbutted me. That's why I lost. Like, what's the same crap, man? You're the same crap. And plus, O'Malley's, in my opinion... He's probably a smarter guy than Cody. You know, Cody doesn't look back, but like he was at that point too, right? Not that long ago. Last year, he was like that, where he got injured and he lost the fight because of it. And also, Marlon Vera is a way better opponent than Cody Garbrandt has probably fought in half his career. You know, Garbrandt, like Thomas Almeida, he knocked out, right? Almeida hasn't fought ever since, like like four or three years ago. Knocked out Tegan Muzugaki. Tegan Muzugaki's not in the UFC anymore. Alright, beat Dominic Cruz. Dominic Cruz is almost, like, he's becoming almost irrelevant in the UFC. I mean, he's still a great fighter, but he hasn't fought that much. He hasn't had a win ever since, like, since four years ago. 
Then uh, Garbrandt has beat it, like Rafael Mendez, who doesn't fight that much in the UFC anymore. And all these people, Marcus uh, Brimage, you know, he doesn't fight in the UFC anymore. And I go, well, O'Malley Vera was a huge step up in competition. So, yeah, I give credit where credit's due to Marlon Vera. But I don't like it how they, And then Henry Segura's talking, like, Henry Segura doesn't even fight anymore. What's the point of him even saying anything? Plus, like, people always point out, and I don't like it when people make fun of Henry for this. But he's got to remember, like, he got knocked down in the first round against Demetrius. <clears throat> Excuse me, do the body shots. And um, and then, you know, he's missed weight, and then it's embarrassing because he's an Olympian. Right? When Olympic, Olympic athlete knows how to manage their weight, especially a wrestler. So, I don't know where all this crap's come from. You know, Garbrandt, you know, he's definitely, he's hilarious because he's always saying how... Oh, you know, I'm the best. You know, I get title shots. We got to knock guys out. But you got to remember, he's never... Every time he loses by knockout. And plus, he's fighting like these, like, tomato cans most of the time. Except for, you know, the most recent fights like Rafael Sanzao and Dominic Cruz and TJ Dillashaw. Like, every other guy he's fought, it's kind of like, okay, you know. So, for Sean O'Malley, I would like to see him fight maybe either Marab Devoshwili, you know, the last... The other Bantamweight fight that happened... Or he fights Rob Fawn, who's going to be a fellow striker, a striking match. But Marlon Vera, man, the doors open up for that guy. I think he should be fighting either um, Dry Favor. Favor, if you don't know, former WC title holder, UFC title challenger. Uh, I believe he's ranked like in the top 10 now, which I don't know how, since he hasn't beaten that many guys ever since he came out of retirement again. So Marlon Vera versus him. Or Marlon Vera versus, um, what's his face? Jimmy Rivera. Jimmy Rivera, a guy who was at the top five, lost a couple fights pretty badly, was able to rebound in a fight against Cody Stamen. I think those two. If Marlon Vera beats Jimmy Rivera, then no way you can get Marlon Vera a title shot. And for Sean O'Malley, uh, the only bad thing about this foot injury for me, you know, I said that he took the loss, it's whatever. Everybody loses eventually if you fight the right people. But the bad thing is, like, you know, he's not going to be able to fight in for a while, at least. I would imagine. So, hopefully, he can get back in the octagon soon. I still think if he beat, if O'Malley beats somebody the way he usually beats them, by KO first round or whatever, I think that um he can still preserve that fight with Cody uh, in the future. Moving on to the main event, Stipe Miocic wins via unanimous decision over um, former champ champ Daniel Cormier. Um, this fight, there's a lot to unpack. The first round, I would say that DC was in the advantage, taking the center of the octagon. Stipe looked great. You know, he looked in phenomenal shape, moving side to side, right? That's the key to being Daniel, in my opinion. He's not fighting in front of him, right? If you fight in front of him, he has the chances for his combination striking, and then he has the chance to um, use his wrestling, right? You stand right in front of him. Stipe doing a great job of moving side to side. Um, DC doing a great job of kicking Stipe's lead leg. Both guys kind of kicking each other a lot. <clears throat> Stipe Miocic having these beautiful fakes with the hands, right? He'll fake the hands, making Daniel think he's throwing a left hook, and then boom, come down with the right straight. Um, Stipe Miocic, you know, threw a couple body shots, a couple hard body shots. And uh, the body shots, you know, he threw a lot of... And I thought um, both guys were doing a great job of keeping to most of the game plans that I thought they should. Stipe Miocic throwing a lot of body kicks, a lot of leg kicks. Um, 
couple punches to the body, and Daniel Cormier working the lead leg of Stephen Miocic. And in the first round, you could tell that Daniel was having a different game plan, right? Before I said he put his hands out, kind of like a zombie. So he got occupied the straight lines against Stipe. But he knew that if he did that, Stipe was going to go in and hit to the body. And in my opinion, that's why you saw Stipe throw the right hand more. Like he landed the right hand more often. Uh, with the right straight, you know, I would call his money punch. The punch that, you know, wins him a lot of money. Uh, wins by KO a lot through that punch. And I thought that's why he was landing it more and more often was because DC wasn't able to use that, uh, what we call like zombie defense where you uh, put your two hands on someone else's two hands. And uh, DC went for the single leg high crotch, which is basically you take your two um, hands, you wrap them around, you wrap your arms around someone's one leg, and then you uh, use your shoulder pressure to push into their thigh and they go down. And, you know, D, D, both of them doing a great job of scrambling. Steve Pay getting to his knees, Daniel Cormier getting the front headlock, Steve Miocic getting up, going to the cage, taking off the head, uh, getting his head out of the, Daniel Cormier's headlock, his two arms, aka, uh, aka Daniel Cormier's two arms. Then, um, you know, they fall over in the clinch a lot, fight out in the open. DC was doing a great job, in my opinion, of faking the single leg, coming over for left hook. He did that a lot, and then his jab was landing a lot throughout this fight. Um, DC trying to get into a clinch situation. He kept landing in the first round. That right hand he did in the first fight between him and Stipe back in 2018. Where, you know, they'll be in the clinch wrestling. And then Stipe would move out of the way off the break. And then DC would hit him with a right hand. And then, um, uh, and then there's one point in the fight where they're going forward. And then... DC hits him with another huge right hand. You see Stipe gets stunned, and he falls onto the cage. Um, you're showing Stipe has great durability. And then that was the end of the first round. So what you can take from it is that you know, DC's not going to do the hand fighting anymore. Stipe Milchik's right hand is going to be there more often. Both guys are looking to work the body and the legs. Daniel Cormier is willing to go in the clinch and wrestle a little bit more. And then the second round starts. Uh, once again, in my opinion, the reason why Stipe was having such a great success was the fakes. And then he had even these new combinations he was throwing out. You know, he would switch his feet, meaning his left foot would go to the back and his right foot would go front. Throw the left hand. And then you would see DC duck, right? Like, you know, when somebody like Stipe, who doesn't typically switch stance that often, switch his feet that often, you duck, right? You don't know what's coming. And you see Stipe, he threw the switch punch. As DC's ducking through the uppercut, and then DC would back up. And then, um, you know, Stipe was just having a great job of throwing a lot of knees in the clinch, uh, framing off of DC's face, meaning using his forearm to push DC's face off of him. Then, uh, you know, DC doing a great job throwing a lot of kicks, um, using his jab very well for a guy with a reach disadvantage. He used his jab extremely well. And then um, Stipe, uh, DC got a little lazy, you know, got caught up against the cage, moving towards Stipe's right hand. And kind of like Rosenstrike did to JDS, Stipe stepped with his right foot forward, hit DC with a hard right hook, trying to finish DC on the ground. Uh, Stipe stepped into mount against the cage. DC was kind of like his back was against the fence. And then basically he hugged on to Stipe to make sure that Stipe doesn't have enough posture enough distance to generate a lot of power in his punches 
Then the basically the third round, um, you know, DC was kind of like uh, stressed out. You know, he was saying to his coach, Crazy Bob Cook, his coach from America Kickboxing Academy, if he got dropped, and you know, he kind of wasn't listening as much as you would like. You know, he was saying I need you to wrestle more and stuff like that. And then um, DC doing well, kicking the lead leg, but yet Stipe getting off of that beautiful jab. Not being there, in my opinion, Daniel, and this was kind of like the talk of all five rounds. Uh, Daniel Cormier was trying to use his wrestling, try to get a single leg, but Stipe was never in front of him. Then Stipe wins the third round, landing a lot of right hands, doing a good job of landing knees to the head into the body in the clinch as DC goes for the takedown. Um, then DC gets poked in the eye, which I know is a big part of the fight, is that he got poked in his left eye. I believe it was left eye. Yeah, I'm pretty sure some stuff. And then, um, you know, the ref didn't see it, and DC was complaining about it. Which, that's why I said the refs is kind of stupid. Like, you know, we have replay, right? We're in this world where we have iPhones, iPads, we have the cloud, all this stuff. And then yet, we're not, the UFC's not freaking using replays to see if something's wrong, right? It's kind of like why I hate the rules of not using a replay, the replays. And I said it was bad because... You know, I said DC was kind of doing well that round, too, before he got poked in the eye. Then the fourth round comes. Um, you know, DC having a little bit more success, landing a lot of kicks, landing his jab a lot. Both guys landing jab a lot. And Steve should realize he may be ahead of the fight, so he gets against the clinch, uses a lot of um, knees to the body, attempts some, a spinning elbow against Daniel. Um... Then the fifth round, DC starts pouring it on. He knows he has to get the finish, tries to knock off Stipe. And then um, Stipe, what he does great is hold DC against the fence. And just burns out the clock for the last um, couple, like two minutes in the fifth round. And Stipe Milosic retains the belt. So there's two things I want to get from this, right? Before we talk about who I want them to fight next. Daniel Cormier, I would like to see him. And I believe he is retiring. He said on his Instagram that he's thankful for this journey. And uh, he wants to thank the UFC and thank Steve Pay for, you know, the fights and all that stuff. And, you know, that his career has been a ride. Which, you know, it's going to be hard to see a guy, like, you know, that great of a person in the sport. You know, he's a great ambassador to the sport. You know? He's just a completely nice guy. You know, he doesn't have, like, these weird vices where he's, like, an addict or something. Um, you know, he's a, just a typical family man. Run-of-the-mill guy. Uh... He was very funny, very easy to talk to, as I know, because I met him at MSG 2017. And then, um, I like to see him retire. I think he's had a great career. It's going to be, and I think for him, a lot of people are saying, oh, but he's coming off a loss, right? Why would he retire? Why don't he go off on a win? But I said the thing is, for him, he's thinking it's a title fight. I only want to fight titles for a title or get closer to a title or whatever. So for him, I think retiring is the best idea. He said he liked this idea of retiring in a fight against Stipe because he, um, just because, you know, this is a title fight, you know, there's nothing that gets bigger, you know. He just, he doesn't want to end where he's fighting on the prelims and young guys are beating him up. For Stipe Miocic, many possibilities. I know that Francis Ngannou wants to fight him for the title, obviously, in a rematch. And I think it'll be a very intriguing fight. Um, Naganu has improved a little bit, I believe, since the first fight. You know, he has better shot selection in his punches. 
However, like, you know, he's done a better job at choosing what punch to throw, being a little bit more, slightly more conservative. However, if you look at it, all his wins, like his win streak, his big knockout win streak, is basically he wins in the first round by KO. So we can't really tell if he's improved. No one has shot a takedown on him recently anyways. So it's tough to see what it's going, what's going to happen to him, uh, Francis Ngannou. Personally, I would like to see Stipe fight John Jones, right? You get the greatest light heavyweight against the greatest heavyweight. Plus, I think Stipe has a really good chance of beating John. He has great lateral movement. So, John, a lot of his kicks are straight kicks. You have to focus, he has to focus on a straight line. Even his punches are mostly on a straight line. Except for his, of course, his spinning kicks and spinning elbows and things like that. So Stipe, I think, has a great lateral movement. He has great cardio to keep up with John. I have a feeling that John believes if Stipe and him fight, that he's just going to be able to outpace Stipe or Stipe's not going to be ready for um a pace like a light heavyweight brings. And then Miocic technically is a better wrestler than John. You know, Division One, uh, NCAA, and then John Jones wrestled at junior college. And um, so... That I think Steve will have an advantage over. And John Jones kind of always struggles with a lot of boxing. Like, guy who can hit combinations, switch angles. Which Steve Miocic basically his whole, his whole career. But I do think Ngannou deserves a title shot. So I think the way to resolve it is you have John Jones versus Ngannou as a pay-per-view main event. Because John, I know that he said he doesn't want to test out heavyweight against the heavyweight champion. You know, He wants to kind of like fight guys at heavyweight. On the way to the title. So then he's used to how his body um, reacts to the additional weight on himself. And I think the guy was a great fight. You know, he's going to have to use his wrestling. He gets to see how much power he has with his strikes. And I think for Jones, the big thing for him is that he said that a heavyweight, he wouldn't have as many options as he does a light heavyweight in terms of offense, right? Like, if he goes for a takedown against, like, you know, a big freaking dude and it gets... Uh, stops the takedown. There's a lot of energy being burned for him. So I can understand what he means by that. So I think a fight against Ngannou makes sense. And for Ngannou, of course, a lot of people would argue, oh, isn't he risking the title shot? He could just fight Stipe. He has enough to fight Stipe, all this crap. But the thing is, is that if Ngannou beats John, he beats the greatest fighter of this generation. Like, how can you argue like that fight, that win doesn't mean anything? That's how good John Jones is. Despite John never fighting that weight class or fighting a heavyweight at all, it still means a lot to beat him, no matter what. So I think for Nagano, that'll be enough of a motivator. And Nagano even said that he's interested in the fight. And I want to get into a little bit of some news. Uh, you know, John Jones, they say he vacated his light heavyweight belt. There's rumors Dominic Reyes, who fought John Jones last in a very close fight, and Jan Bohovic are going to be fighting each other for the belt, possibly. John Jones says that he wants to begin to start gaining weight to go up to heavyweight. And I go... And then he seems like he wants to make this a lifestyle. Like, he wants... Heavyweight's his new weight class. You know, from now until he retires. So, I think that's a great idea um, for him. And he should fight Ngannou, you know, instead of the champion, right? If you fight Stipe, you're going to have to deal with power, wrestling, cardio, experience. But with Ngannou, you're going to have to deal with knockout power, basically. And a big guy. And Jones could experiment with some other stuff, right? How his weight goes. And I think the line, the line, it's starting to align itself perfectly. John versus Ngannou, winner fights Stipe. That makes the most sense. 
And uh, while we're at it, you know, this week's the Saturday's fight, Frankie Edgar versus Pedro Munoz five round fight. Not the most exciting card, to be honest with you. Uh, it's a little bit of doo doo. Of great co main event, no need to talk about it. It's just two big guys beating the crap out of each other. Alonzo Menafield versus Ovin Simpro. I I'm sure it's gonna be exciting, but not that much to break it down. Uh, but Frankie Edgar versus Pedro Munoz is a lot to break down. And Frankie Edgar making his bantamweight debut, New Jersey's own Frankie Edgar. Dropping down 135 pounds. You know, he's not going to be that big of a guy in this weight class. He is the same height as Pedro Munoz. He will have a three-inch reach advantage, which is a lot for Frankie. Frankie, you know, likes to fight very long. But the thing is that he always fought very long guys. So he had to get very close to them. But now he can fight at distance, pick at people with his jab, with his cross, use his kicks. And... I'm going to be honest, I'm a huge fan of Frank Edgar. Uh, I always liked his style, you know, mixing it up, putting, and then, you know, fighting sometimes like a grappler could be kind of like the color black and then the striker is the color white. But Frankie Edgar kind of blends those colors, makes it look shades of gray. And I think that's going to be, that has to be very useful to him against Pedro Munoz, who's a guy who has big power in his kicks, his, particularly his leg kicks and his, uh, his front kick to the body. And then he likes to brawl with people, which... That's for me, is the biggest danger for Frankie. And then Munoz has a great guillotine, which he'll go for if he feels like you're any bit close to him. Even if he shouldn't be going for it, he will go for it. And for Frankie Edgar, he's going to need to mix it up. He'll go to the combinations. And then when Munoz gets, um, when Pedro Munoz gets very uh, greedy and tries to not come forward aggressively, go for the takedown. But Munoz is not ready, right? He won't be ready to snatch on his guillotine. So. Um, but the thing is, I go, the thing as a Frankie Edgar fan that I'm scared of is Pedro Munoz is one of the very few guys at Bantamweight that could not, like, legitimately knock people out. And Frankie, you know, he got knocked out his last fight pretty badly. I know it was a while ago, but still, you know, something to be concerned over. Um, and the keys to victory for both, and then plus you gotta think, Frankie Edgar is cutting down 135. How is his body gonna react to it? I think he's gonna be fine. Because, you know, he's a constant professional. He wasn't really that big for 145. This is probably, like, the weight class he should have been in for a while. So, the way I see this fight going is two ways. Frankie Edgar moves around the octagon. And you got to mind, this is a small octagon. Which will probably be a disadvantage for Frankie Edgar, who, who fights in many ranges, right? Pedro Munoz likes to go forward, throw hard kicks... Force you to not move back anymore, right? Because the more you move back, the more he's going to kick you. And then he forces you to brawl with him. And then if you feel like you're getting overwhelmed by his strikes, you sh- you shoot in on him. You get to you get the takedown, but then he snatches your neck and chokes you out and wins. He, you know, taps you out via submission. Frankie Edgar, he always mixes it up, you know. <clears throat> and he, that's why he's at his best, is mixing it up. And for me, what I would like to see him is move left and right, lateral movement. Use a lot of fakes. Fake coming in, Munoz kicks, boom, that's when you hit your boxing combinations on him. <clears throat> and Pedro Munoz is notoriously known for being very tough in this weight class. And uh, I think for me, what he's got to do is just... Um, what, what Frankie Edgar's got to do is fake. And you never know... Frankie could knock him out, right? You know, he's stung people before in upper weight classes with punches. And now he's fighting guys who are more of the same size as him. So, hit your combinations. Get Munoz frustrated. 
Mick <clears throat> Munoz abandoned the kicking game, coming aggressive with the brawling, and then, you know, punch, pick him apart with the jab a little bit, pick him apart with the cross, fake again, fake again, move lateral, and then when Munoz really commits, boom, that's when you take him down. Pedro Munoz is not really a guy known for submissions off his back. Like, I know he has an arm bar, a couple arm bar wins. But Frankie Edgar's fought a lot of great submission artists. And he um is, is has very good submission defense. And it's kind of like what I said before with Herbert Burns, where if you have a guy who's great on the ground, <clears throat> but then you get a guy who's great on the ground himself, can get the right positions and use the right strikes, it equals itself. And Frankie's definitely that guy. You know, he's been able to ground upon many guys like Charles Oliveira, who's way bigger than him, way longer than him, and has a great submission threat. <clears throat> In my opinion, a greater submission threat than Pedro Munoz. And for me, that's the key for Frankie Edgar to get this win, is to mix it up and stay. Um, make sure you don't get caught up in a brawl and use your fakes and feints against Pedro Munoz. You know, Munoz is a guy who kind of doesn't fight on a strategy, right? He has a strategy in the beginning, but if things start to get in trouble, he kind of just does whatever he wants. And um, I could, the thing is, is like, Frankie Edgar's a plus 200 underdog, which is pretty big, right? He's the older guy, 38, Munoz is 33. Munoz probably has more knockout power. <clears throat> Frankie Edgar's moving to a different weight class, so you know how that's going to go. You know, maybe he doesn't have the pace he has before or the durability or whatever. So for me, I think um, kind of like the other fights, I think I'm my pick, you know, I don't want to say, I think Pedro Munoz is going to win via finish within the like two rounds, first two rounds. But the thing is, is that he kind of doesn't fit the profile for a typical Frankie Edgar, a guy who beats Frankie Edgar, in my opinion, like. Frankie Edgar, usually he loses to guys with great wrestling defense. Guys who have, um, who can punch straight. That's my big thing. Like, if you watch, like, his Max Holloway fight <clears throat> and then his Jose Aldo fight, he was able, these guys were able, or, like, a guy who has big size on him. That's another factor that Frankie usually loses to. Um, you know, these guys who are long and tall, Frankie can't get close enough to use his volume against. And he's getting picked apart with straight shots. But in this case, he's going to be the longer guy. So maybe he can do that to Munoz. In that way, I don't think Munoz fits that criteria of a long, big striker, right? But Frankie, it seems like when he can't get the takedown or the guy has a submission threat, he kind of like, he usually loses fights like Brian Ortega, right? Brian Ortega was a guy who you don't want to really take down. And when Frankie realized that Ortega has a lot of submission threats, he abandoned it, and then he couldn't be as aggressive as he usually likes to. So he's got to be careful of that. You know, if you can't get the takedown, stick to your striking. Believe in your fakes and feints and your pace and your volume. I'm going to say Pedro Munoz wins, hoping that maybe I'll jinx and then Frankie Edgar will win. I, for me, to be honest, I, it's kind of hard to see Pedro Munoz have a game to beat Frankie Edgar. He's too aggressive in the wrong way, in my opinion. He doesn't throw... He's not very intelligent when it comes to throwing punches. He's an emotional fighter. Um, Frankie Edgar's wrestling is based off of going to the back, meaning that he's not a guy who'll just shoot a double leg. He'll constantly be circling. If he can't get the double leg, he'll circle to your back where there's no way you could submit him with a choke. 
So in that way, I think Frankie Edgar kind of neutralizes Pedro Munoz's guillotine. And Frankie's fought fabulous guillotine fighters like Max Holloway and Uriah Faber. Which Uriah Faber has an amazing guillotine. Top three best guillotines in MMA. And Frankie was able to neutralize that. So I'm kind of hoping... It's tough because Munoz, he's the favorite, right? It's the obvious guy to pick. But Frankie, I really... like um. He has all the ways to win this fight, in my opinion. <clears throat> and Munoz, he kind of doesn't fit like a Frankie Edgar, like a guy who beats Frankie Edgar. And Frankie Edgar fits all the stuff that beats Pedro Munoz, right? He's faster, more diverse. He has the wrestling to stop the takedown, and he has combination striking. I just think that the betting odds are probably just looking at the fact that Frankie's moving to a different weight class and then the age. So, yeah. Frankie Edgar plus 200 sounds too hard to pass off of, right? I just said that he has he has all the keys to win. Pedro Munoz kind of doesn't have most of the keys to beat Frankie Edgar. So it's kind of a tough spot. Uh, uh, plus 200, you got to bet on Frankie a little bit at least. Um, that's all I'm going to say for this one. I, I don't like to pick a winner. It's somebody who I admire so much and all that stuff. Yeah, I think Frankie Edgar... Ah, crap, I keep going back to it. I think he's he's got all the skills to beat Munoz, you know? He's got the speed, the athleticism, the reach, especially. I just think uh, the age and durability is kind of the big question in this fight. So, hopefully I gave you enough information. I'm sorry, guys, I was on the fence for this one. Or maybe you didn't think I was on the fence, but whatever. Hope you enjoyed the show. Please support us. If you didn't already hear, please subscribe to the show, like, whatever, all that jazz. And please tune in for next week's one where we cover, let me see which card we're going to cover, where we cover Anthony Smith versus Alexander Roktik. Ugh, doo-doo card, but I'll try my best to make it entertaining for y'all. Thank you all for listening and hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you were listening to, please subscribe to Fans Assemble. And if you can, please give us a rating. Do it for the audio world. They need you. Thank you.